If you don't have your own Bible open with you now, I want you to grab the chair Bible in front of you. I want you to pull it out, and I want you to turn to page 941. And you know, you are a New Englander, you can do whatever you want, but that's what I want you to do. Um, And the reason why is because details matter. For example, if we say, we have eaten, comma, grandma, that's totally different than if you take the comma out and we say, we have eaten, grandma. (laughs) Little details matter when it comes to meaning. And we want to absorb as much meaning as we can from the little details of this text. And so we will all find it profitable if you have the chair Bibles open and you can follow along on page 941. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, this passage of Scripture, breathed out by God, breathed out by you, contains the life-giving truth of your salvation for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you will speak to each one here, that you will be uh, saving those who have, have not yet believed in Jesus, that, that the truth of these words will ring home to them in a new way, that those of us who have already believed in Jesus will be strengthened in the truth and encouraged by it, Uh, to serve you with joy for your glory. We ask for your help. It is your word, your living word, and we uh, invite you to be at work among us and in us by your Holy Spirit, we pray, uh, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, these verses before us are some of the greatest words that we will ever encounter. And due to the greatness of these words, this week I was having a bit of writer's block because I wanted to write a sermon that matches the greatness of the passage. But I can't do that. So let me start with this disclaimer. This is just an ordinary sermon, run-of-the-mill sermon from an ordinary run-of-the-mill man. But don't tune it out. Because the passage of scripture that we are dealing with is a spectacular treasure. Um, This passage of scripture has in it the best news of all time. Uh, So I find that what Paul says about himself is true of this sermon as well. We have this treasure, this glorious gospel in jars of clay, in ordinary, everyday, nothing special containers. So never mind the container. Let us consider the treasure that we find in the scripture itself. Let's give our attention to these life-giving, life-transforming words. Well, if you have been with us, you will know that in our series in Romans so far, we have just walked through the bad news of the good news of Jesus Christ. We have learned, Paul has laid out in great detail our terminal diagnosis that every single human being deserves God's judgment and wrath because of our sin. 
There is no one righteous, not even one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have sinned against the holy and righteous God, both Jew and Gentile alike, and we have learned that all who practice such things deserve to die. To summarize what we've learned already, we have a righteousness problem. As sinners, we do not have the righteousness that God requires. And because of our lack of righteousness before God, we face God's wrath on the day of judgment. And it's even, you, you think, well, Neil, this was supposed to be the good news sermon. I'm just recapping the bad news. We're getting to the good news. It's even worse than we thought because what is more is that we are completely unable to attain a righteous standing before God by anything that we do, by our good works. Our own moral performance, our own good works will never get us there. Romans 3.20 says, by the works of the law, by our own performance, no human being will be justified, counted righteous in God's sight. But this morning, our passage starts with two world-changing, life-changing words. But now. But now, there is some good news. But now, there is a better way. Now, there is a way to be counted righteous in God's sight. Let's read verse 21 again. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. But now, the righteousness of God has been revealed. This phrase, righteousness of God, has a double meaning. It can mean the righteousness from God, righteousness that God gives to us, and it can also mean the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God is and has in himself. And here, Paul uses this phrase to catch both meanings at once. It has both shades of meaning. We discover that now, in the righteousness of God, He has provided us with a righteousness from God. Both. God has made a way for sinners like us to be counted righteous, made righteous in his sight. He has provided us with a righteousness from him. And this righteousness, Paul says, that God provides comes apart from the law. What does that mean, apart from the law? It means that this way of righteousness that God has provided does not come about by our own performance, by our own good works of obedience, by our own law-keeping. And that is a good thing. Because the works of the law, our own moral performance, does not make us righteous in God's sight. 
verse 20 reminded us that the law actually has the opposite effect. Through the law, Paul wrote in verse 20, comes knowledge of sin. Through God's law, we don't make ourselves righteous. Instead, we come to realize that we are not at all righteous in and of ourselves. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed that comes about apart from the law. Paul adds that even though this righteousness from God isn't achieved by the law, the law of God and the prophets certainly point us to it. They bear witness to it. They have been anticipating it and predicting it and foretelling it all along the way. So now, Paul says, there is a way for us to be made righteous in God's sight that doesn't depend on our own human effort. So what is it? What is this new way of righteousness that comes from God? Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness that God provides to us comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, any good editor will tell you to take out all the redundancy in your communication. You don't have to say it twice when saying it once is better. But Paul doesn't listen to the editors. He builds in intentional redundancy there in verse 22 so that we don't miss it. How does this righteousness come? Through faith. To whom does it come? To all who believe. This is a redundancy because our English words faith and believe are actually the same root word in the original. Same word family. So to highlight Paul's redundancy, we might say, a righteousness of God through belief in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He is doubling up for emphasis. The righteousness that God provides comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one way to get it, through faith. And this righteousness of God is for all who believe. That means it is for everyone, anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, whether you are from the spiritual in crowd or you are from the unspiritual, unwashed masses. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, I don't belong here with these church people. Well, these church people are all sinners. We know it and the Bible tells us so. So you do belong here, but this passage tells us that no matter who you are, you belong here because this righteousness comes from God. It's not our own doing, and it comes to all who believe, no matter who you are. Look at verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned, Paul writes, and fall short of the glory of God. <laughs> 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's emphasis is on all, all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means all, everybody. But in this context that we've just been through, it includes the nuance of all, meaning both Jew and Gentile. Likewise, just as all have sinned, every human being, both Jew and Gentile, so also all who believe in Jesus Christ are justified. Any human being, whether Jew or Gentile, is justified when they believe. What does it mean to be justified? We need to know that righteous and justified both come from the same root word. Um, Justified is the verb form of righteous or righteousness. It means to make righteous, to count righteous. So, Paul is saying that all who believe are made righteous, justified, counted as righteous in God's sight. And notice how Paul reinforces his point that it does not come by works of the law, by more redundancy in verse 24. In case you missed it, this being made righteous comes... As a gift, Paul says. And just in case you still missed it, he adds another layer for emphasis. It comes by his grace, which is another way of saying as a gift. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. It's by his grace. You didn't earn it. So what is Paul's purpose with these layers of redundancy? He wants us to be clear that there is no way at all for us to make ourselves righteous. It is not earned. It is not generated or produced by our activity. The righteousness that God provides comes from Him and from Him alone. It comes by His own initiative, by His own activity, By his own accomplishment, it is graciously, freely given, unearned, undeserved, but given anyway, only by his grace, to everyone who believes. So how does God do it? How can God just hand out righteousness to undeserving sinners like us? How does God make us righteous when we believe in Jesus completely apart from our own doing? Paul explains in the last phrase of verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means rescue. It means deliverance. It means freedom from captivity. There is a deliverance, a rescue, redemption, 
in Christ Jesus. And how was this redemption accomplished? How does Jesus set us free from captivity? Verse 25 tells us how Jesus accomplished our redemption. Whom God put forward, that's Jesus, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Notice, first of all, that this was God's initiative. God put Jesus Christ forward. He said, here, this one. It also says in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's Jesus, the suffering servant. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is God's initiative to put forward Jesus. It was God the Father who put forward Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die so that whoever believes in him might not perish. But Jesus was also in on it. Jesus himself was also a willing participant. Jesus says in John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is saying, the Father has sent me to lay down my life, and I'm doing it willingly. I'm in on this. I am all in. So God the Father and God the Son we're working together. It was God's initiative to put Jesus forward unto death at the cross. And why would God do this? Verse 25, again, in our passage. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Uh-oh, it's a big word. What is this propitiation? Maybe you're one of those people who doesn't like big words, you resist big words, and yet you probably know the word chemotherapy, you probably know the word carbohydrate. We have no problem with big words when they speak of things that are important to us. Well, propitiation is a big word that we all ought to know. Propitiation is far more important than chemotherapy or carbohydrate because it deals with the most important matter of life and death, our eternal destiny. It is a word that describes the greatest news of all time. So what does propitiation mean? Propitiation means the satisfaction of God's wrath. It means the appeasement 
of God's wrath. We might say, well, I don't like wrath. I don't think God should have any wrath. Well, if... But in the same breath we say, well, I think God should do something about all the evil and all the injustice in the world. So if God is holy and right and true, then he must punish evil. He must punish sin. The wrong has to be made right. The debt has to be paid. God's holy and just wrath towards us must be satisfied. And a propitiation is a sacrifice of atonement that satisfies the just and holy wrath of God which is against us because of our sin. And God put forward his own son, Jesus Christ, to be a propitiating sacrifice so that God's holy and just wrath towards us might be satisfied. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. So what is all of this shedding of blood? What is that about? Why blood? What does blood do? Well, the blood sacrifice, the sacrifice of atonement prescribed by God in the Old Testament is the exchange of one life for another life. That's what the blood means. The life is symbolized by the blood. Drain out the blood, and the life is taken. So the blood represents the exchange of one life for another life, a substitutionary atonement. One life given on behalf of another. And Jesus took our penalty of death upon himself. Jesus took the punishment of death for our sins that we deserve upon himself. Christ died for our sins. Our propitiation was accomplished by his blood. So that is what God did to provide us with this gift of righteousness. He put forward his very own beloved sinless son. Jesus Christ, to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, a propitiation by his blood. And Paul tells us again how we get this redemption, how we get this incredible, gracious gift for our own. You see it there in verse 25? This propitiation is to be received by faith. Faith is the only way to lay hold of this righteousness from God. When we believe in Jesus Christ, 
We receive righteousness from God and redemption from his wrath by the wrath-satisfying propitiation, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. This is God's gracious gift to solve our righteousness problem. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it glorious? Isn't it hard to fathom that God would go to such great lengths to provide us with the righteousness we so desperately needed? What a merciful and gracious God. What a loving God. What a self-giving God to be so kind to us. But you know, the propitiation that Jesus Christ offered by his blood doesn't only solve our righteousness problem. It also solves God's own righteousness problem. I don't mean that there really is a problem with God's righteousness. But last week, I said that in the book of Romans, there are two trials going on uh, in the book of Romans. We are on trial. Our righteousness is in question. And God is also on trial. His own righteousness is in question. And the propitiation that Jesus accomplished by his blood serves to acquit not only us of wrongdoing by faith in him, but also God. God himself is acquitted of any charge of wrongdoing. And this is point two in the sermon outline. And it's found in verses 25 and 26 in our passage. In reality, God has no righteousness problem. There's no lack of righteousness in God. There is no fault in God's character, which is why I say problem in quotes in the sermon outline. I'll just do air quotes up here. But even though there is no lack of righteousness in God, there was a question about God's righteousness in need of an answer. And here's the question about God's righteousness. How can a holy and just God simply let sinners get away with it? How can a holy and just God just overlook our sin and not punish it and still be righteous and holy and just? There's a passage in the book of Exodus, Exodus 34 and thir- uh, 33 and 34, where the people of Israel sinned with the golden calf, and Moses is interceding on behalf of the people up on the mountain with the Lord, and he, he asks, Now therefore, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And he says, Moses says later, please show me your glory. 
And the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name of the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So the Lord hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and covers Moses with his hand and makes um, makes himself to pass before Moses and to proclaim his name. And this is what the Lord proclaims about his glory and his goodness and his character. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So the Lord reveals his character to Moses and he says, I'm merciful and gracious and forgiving, but I will not let the guilty go unpunished. And the question is, how can both of those things be true? How can God be just and also forgiving? How can God let sinful people get away with it? How can he forgive anyone? And this is what we find in verses 25 and 26. Even though there's no lack of righteousness in God, there is a question about God's righteousness in need of an answer. How can a holy and just God simply let sinners get away with it? And Paul says in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness, this propitiation that he accomplished through Jesus was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance, he had passed over former sins. See, the Lord passed over former sins. It means that he did not punish them. He left them unpunished. And while that is a wonderful thing for us, God's lack of punishment of sin presents a problem when it comes to righteousness. If God doesn't punish sinners, he simply lets them get away with it, then he would not be righteous and just. He would not be holy and true. Perhaps you've been following in recent weeks about the Amber Geiger, Botham John murder trial. Uh, it's been a moving case in so many ways, and if you haven't seen Botham John's brother's statement, you need to watch it. It is such a beautiful picture of forgiveness. But in the end of this horrible trial, 
this horrible ordeal, uh, a tragedy on all sides, Amber Geiger was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. But this week, there was some controversy over the sentence. Some people are unsatisfied with the sentence, saying that 10 years is not enough. Only 10 years was not a fitting punishment for taking a man's life, they feel. And so the crowds have been protesting this past week. They've been protesting the sentence with the cry, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. They want justice. The the wrong has to be made right. It has to be met with a fitting punishment. That is their heart's desire. And whatever you may think about the sentence that Amber Geiger received, the importance of justice is still on display there. If justice isn't done, peace is not accomplished. Justice must be done. The crime must be paid for. And it is a grave injustice and unrighteousness when the guilty go unpunished. So here's the question about God's righteousness. How can God himself be righteous when he lets sinners go unpunished? And Paul explains that the reason God passed over former sins was to show now, to display now, at the present time, his righteousness in the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 26 again. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that he might be just and the justifier. What does that mean? The propitiation of Jesus Christ is a display of God's righteousness because he upholds his righteousness, his justice, in that every sin is justly punished. Justice is done. And yet, because of the propitiation accomplished by Jesus Christ, God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly at the same time. God punishes sin completely, and he also forgives the sinner completely at the same time. The debt has been paid. Justice has been satisfied. The wrath of God has been poured out. And yet at the same time, the ungodly, that's me, that's you, that's all of us, are made righteous in God's sight. Isn't that amazing? In the propitiation Jesus made by his blood, God rightly punishes sin, and at the same time, sinners are made righteous in God's sight. 
It is a righteousness from God accomplished entirely by him and not by us. It comes to us by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul has been telling us over and over again in these short verses how we benefit from that amazing redemption in Christ. By faith. By believing in Jesus. So God has set the table well. He has put Jesus forward as a propitiating sacrifice so that we can receive a gift of righteousness before God by grace through faith. And the only question is, have you come to the table to feast on this righteousness? To receive this gift? Faith means that when we hear this good news, this good news of righteousness from God in Jesus Christ, we put all of our trust in Jesus. Faith means that we fully rely on him as our hope of rescue, as our means of righteousness. Faith means that we admit our guilt before a holy God and we abandon our attempts at trying to cobble together a man-made righteousness of our own. And we confess Jesus as our Savior and King, our only claim to righteousness before God. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you received God's gracious gift of righteousness provided for you in the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross? There's no other way to escape the wrath of God to come. There is no other way to attain the righteousness that we need that God requires. There's no earning it. There's no deserving it. There is only receiving it as a gift by grace through faith. And for sinners like us who are in desperate need of righteousness from God and who are totally incapable of manufacturing our own, this good news is as good as it gets. Why would we ever walk away from this good news? And yet the Bible says that the light shines in the darkness, the light of Christ shines in the darkness, and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. You can see in the bulletin outline that there is a third section in this passage, and uh, it's verses 27 through 31. And in this last section, Paul does what he did earlier in chapter 3 again. He goes into question and answer mode, or frequently asked questions in light of this good news. 
And the first question is there in verse 27. Then, in light of this, what becomes of our boasting? We boast all the time, don't we? We have spiritual pride about our accomplishments, about our righteousness. We think that because we did X, Y, and Z, or because we didn't do A, B, and C, that we are better than others. Spiritual pride is like water in the basement. It is always trying to seep in. It always finds its way. But if the bad news is true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that by our own works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight. And if the only way that we can ever hope to be counted righteous in God's sight is to believe in Jesus Christ all by grace as a gift, then there is never any place for boasting. There is no place for spiritual pride in the Christian life, in the Christian church. Boasting is excluded, Paul says. Do you like to be excluded? Excluded means that you don't get invited in. You're not allowed in there. Any sinner can come in the only thing that isn't allowed in is boasting. Boasting has to stay out. Because as verse 28 says, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, apart from anything we do. So if we are proud of ourselves because we're Christians, if we begin to think of ourselves as superior to others because we have been made righteous by faith, then we simply don't get the good news. We are not better than others. The cry of our hearts concerning those who are lost in sin should only be, Lord, save them too, just like you saved me. If not for the grace of God to me, I would be there. That would be me. So this gospel should produce in us radical humility. No room for boasting. Well, Paul goes on in the uh, question and answer, but I think we're going to... I'll just leave it to the ABF discussion and to your own reading to take on the rest of the questions and answers in this passage. 